0: for God's holy word, John 7, and verse 37, and we'll read 37 through 39, and this is God's holy word, John 7, 37, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst." Let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Amen. You may be seated we have already asked God's blessing upon the word. May he indeed work mightily in us by it. Amen. Our subject tonight is that Jesus calls thirsty sinners to himself. Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, calls thirsty sinners to himself. At the beginning of this chapter, chapter 7 here in verse 2, it tells us that our passage is set in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is when the whole nation of Israel celebrated a camping festival. Well, kind of. It's not camping like we know it here in the United States of America in the 21st century. All the families built temporary booths. They would cut down branches of palm trees and pine trees and whatever kind of trees were in the area, and they would make temporary booths in the environs of Jerusalem and camp for seven days, with the last day, being a kind of climax of the celebration. And this camping festival reminded Israel every year that they had returned from slavery in Egypt to their home in Canaan. Israel, or Jacob, and then Israel, his descendants, the children of Israel, the heirs of God's promises, had gone to Egypt to escape famine and ended up in a condition of slavery, a terrible form of exile from their home in Canaan. It was home because God promised it to them. They were there in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. And then in that marvelous work of God that we summarize by the term the Exodus, God began to fulfill his promise of bringing Israel home to their land. On the way, they went through a thirsty desert in which God disciplined them by showing them that he was their only support, their supply, and their comfort. In the wilderness. He was their way out of exile in Egypt back home to Canaan. Manna, the food for the people of Israel, fell directly from God to feed the returning Israelites. Water came to the thirsty Israelites directly from God as Moses struck a rock to make the streams flow. Protection came for the Israelites directly from God when Moses' hands were held up by Aaron and Hur as Joshua fought against the Amalekites. All the blessings that Israel had on their journey from Egypt to home in Canaan were from God. All the blessings were from God and in God. So God commanded them to preserve the lessons that he had taught them in a permanent institution, the Feast of Tabernacles. The purpose was to remind Israel of their divinely sponsored camping trip in the desert. In fact, let's go back to Leviticus 23 and just see where he institutionalizes that. Leviticus 23 and verses 42 and 43. Leviticus 23, 42. After describing the various days of the Feast of Tabernacles and how they are to um, keep the celebration, he says in verse 42... You shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths, or tents, temporary shelters, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the Feast of Tabernacles kept in their minds that God had fed them, watered them, protected them, and blessed them all the way from Egypt to Canaan. Trusting God, the lesson is that trusting God was satisfying for them as they walked in obedience with him. And of course, as you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you see that sinning against God was the way to hunger, exile again, and thirst. But now, fast forward to Jesus' day, where we are in the book of John. When our King Jesus walked into Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, the vast crowds of festival keepers would have had another solemn reality in their minds. They knew from their Bibles, the Old Testament, that Israel was in exile again because of her sin. After God had brought the people into the land of Canaan, he had exiled them to Babylon for their sins. Because of breaking God's covenant law, they had experienced God's promised threats that he had made against them in Deuteronomy when he said, therefore, you shall serve your enemies, which the Lord shall send against you in hunger and in thirst, in nakedness and in want of all things. And then after they had gone to Babylon, they had returned from Babylon to the land again, but it was clear to everyone that the exile was not really over in full. When they had come back from Babylon, they still had no king on the throne of David. God's prophets had made many promises of an eternal, glorious, universal restoration that would affect the entire world, and that the nation of Israel, the the people of God and Zion would be exalted and bless the entire universe. Here in John, where Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, Israel is still under foreign rule and experiencing great hardship. So put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite at the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus is there. You're at Jerusalem. You've dragged some palm branches or other tree branches with you into town, and you built a little booth, and your family is keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. It's kind of a joyful time, a special time. Your nation has been supremely blessed, but now because of sin, it's also clearly cursed. Your joy in what God did with Israel is hampered Diminished, almost extinct, because Rome rules over your nation. Unsavory politicians like Herod and Pilate are the puppets under Rome. And sin racks your country. The religious crowd are hypocrites. The common folk are ignorant, confused, unclean, and like sheep without a shepherd. So imagine you're there with the Lord Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me get back to John. So the Lord Jesus, it says, on the last day of the feast, that great day, the climax of the Feast of Tabernacles, verse 37, it says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me As the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus took a stand as a great prophet of God. He has obeyed his father who said that every male of the house of Israel should make their trek to Jerusalem to join in this festival once a year. His father's word, the scripture, is in his holy heart. Our Christ meditated on God's word day and night. It was to him sweet like honey and precious to him. He knew the promises about the return from exile and the prophets, and he sees in them himself. So he ascends Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He enters his father's house, the temple. He stands before the great congregation and he lifts up his voice like a trumpet. He declares loudly, boldly, plainly, publicly if you're thirsty, Come to me. Now, in an earlier part of this chapter, the, the first half of the chapter that we have not read, John recorded a series of questions that revealed that the subject of Jesus, this prophet from Nazareth, was the buzz and stir of Jerusalem during this whole feast. There's seven or eight questions in the previous part of the chapter that all the people who came to the feast are asking. Where is he? Is is he the prophet that God sent? Could he be the Messiah? This shows that when he stands up and startles them with this strange sermonette, they already had in mind his ministry and its possible relationship to the promises of the Old Testament. They're already wondering, is he the Messiah? And so when he stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come unto me and drink. He's making a definite claim on their attention. In verse 31, it said, And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? So this is no unknown person who stands in the temple and cries aloud. He is the one who has been doing public deeds of healing, and teaching that seemed to fit the bill for Messiah, the anointed one of God. And the Jewish people are all talking, who is this? Could he be the Messiah? And then he makes his glorious claim about water, living water. Now, I see here, and you could put it a different way, but when we read this, when we we see what they say, and then we see what Christ says here in verse 37, He says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. At least in one sense, he claimed to be the end of exile for everyone who believes. Remember, the whole Feast of Tabernacles is about remembering how God had brought them from Egypt to their home and how God had marvelously provided for them in that. And now they're all coming to celebrate this remembrance of what God has done and to this crowd who is thinking of what God has done in the past and is now observing their own condition and then thinking about Christ, Jesus, this man Jesus, this prophet Jesus of Nazareth, as they look upon him and they're wondering about him, he's clearly claiming to be the Messiah who brings the end of sorrow to his people. We won't read Isaiah, Isaiah 11 and 12, but it, it, there's I actually had way too much material for this message, so I had to like just like totally trash a whole bunch of it. So Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah, it's astonishing how the Lord connects all of the various ways in which he had promised to bless Israel with the promises that he declares are going to be fulfilled when Christ, the Messiah, comes. And in 11 and 12, he promises that Jesse's rod will sprout and Jesse's stem will bud. This this sprout from the rod of Jesse, this, this bud from, from Jesse's stem will judge, reprove, and slay his enemies with his mouth. And all creatures that have a natural opposition or danger to one another, like lions putting calves in danger and uh, snakes, putting little children in danger. All of these, these opposed creatures will be reconciled and be in harmony. And, and he puts it in terms of a second exodus as God recovers his re- exiled people. Puts it in terms of going through floods of water and going through the wilderness, and going to home, the place of God's blessing. And then chapter 12 Isaiah declares that they will then sing a song of praise. And at the middle of that song, it says, Behold, God is my salvation. I couldn't help noticing that that word salvation there is Yeshua. God is my Jesus. God is my salvation. And it is the generic word for salvation. That's that's the way the generic word for salvation is all through the Old Testament. It's Yeshua. I will trust And not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. He's actually quoting from Moses' song of praise. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. So when Messiah comes, he's going to do all of these amazing works and salvation the blessing of God which of course old Israel probably thought primarily in terms of physical things like you know all kinds of bounty and blessing in the land but out of all of these works that the Lord would do this salvation would well up and all the people would be satisfied with the water of God the blessed refreshing streams of gladness and joy that come from God himself and so as they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, when this one, they're wondering, is he the Messiah when he stands up and says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. They'll say, he's claiming something. He's claiming to be the one who is supposed to bring all our sorrows to an end. And he is. That's exactly what he's doing. To a crowd who is concerned about how this prophet relates to the Old Testament, this prophet Jesus is claiming to be God, come to fully restore them from their sorrows. Not only a prophet of God, but he's getting the language from God's words of the Old Testament. He's strongly alluding to Isaiah 55, and that's God speaking. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, Come to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. And We won't get off on a rabbit trail, but Peter says that's the resurrection of Christ. If you look in the book of Acts. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And so when our Christ stands up and says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. They say, whoa. he's like claiming some stuff from Isaiah, some big passages in Isaiah. And I declare to you on the basis of not only what we've looked at, but the whole revelation of God's New Testament, God's promises and God's record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, that he is God's Messiah, the promised anointed one of God, and he is God himself. John chapter 1 tells us that the word was in the beginning with God and was God. And that his blessings are poured out not only for national Israel, but for all nations of the world. Jesus is the Messiah for the world. And he is God. He is both God's Messiah and God himself. And he declares to you and to me and to each and every one of us in whatever condition we are in, if you are thirsty, come unto me. And drink. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So, as we hear his little sermonette, after we realize who he is, that wait, it's that prophet from Nazareth who was we were wondering who wait there he is. Some people had wondered, is he coming to the feast? Well now they know. Here he is, he's right there. And they get over the shock, and they're, wait, he's, he's appealing to Isaiah. Okay, but what did he say? If any man thirst, recognize your thirst. Recognize your thirst. If any man, Jesus says, he aims to capture the heart of every individual man, woman, boy, and girl. The specific term man is actually not in the original. The original is simply general. If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Anyone, anyone, if anyone is thirsty, come to Jesus and drink. What is thirst? Well, in the context of the word of God, the thirst that he's talking about here is the experience of the results of separation from God. And then secondly, it's the direct sense of a separation from God. So first, the experience of the results of separation from God. God created Adam and Eve, the original pair of mankind, to be in communion with himself. And when he put them in communion with himself, he put them in a physical environment that was suitable for those who would be made in his image and would be fellowshipping with him. As the pinnacle of his creation, he put them in the best spot on earth, the Garden of Eden. God originally placed mankind in that Garden of Eden, which was watered by a river that flowed from Eden. All kind of fruit trees grew there, pleasant to the eyes, good for food. The tree of life (coughs) was there. But Adam's dreadful fall into sin and his giving his allegiance to Satan— instead of God in whose image he was created, caused the Lord God to exile Adam and Eve from the fruit-filled river-nourished garden and to curse them by consigning them to a miserable death sentence of sweating, laboring, and painfully bearing children in a dusty wilderness until they died and returned to the dust from which they were taken. Adam was thirsty outside the garden. And as you move through the Bible, the picture of thirst in relation to the curse and separation from God is huge. It's all over the place. All the curses in the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy have it in there. As you move through, you find this this idea of the curse with thirst and the blessing with satisfaction and fullness. It's all through the Bible. But let's just jump all the way to Psalm 1. And also Jeremiah 17, they're very, they're very closely related. We won't actually open them, but you can definitely. It's Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17 both picture two kinds of man, a blessed man and a cursed man. The blessed man delights in God's law, meditates in it, trusts in the Lord and makes God his hope and confidence. He's planted like a tree by a water brook or river. His leaf is green. His fruit never fails. It's abundant. Whatever he does prospers. The blessed man is a satisfied man. God pours out mercies upon him. But Psalm 1 and, Psalm, and Jeremiah 17 also depict the cursed man, and they picture him as a thirsty, drought-afflicted tree. Jeremiah seventeen five says, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord, for he shall be like the heath in the desert. A dried and withered up desert plant. And shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land and not inhabited. Salt, heath, dried plants in the desert. Thirst. The man who trusts in man, whose heart departs from the Lord, is thirsty. He's been exiled, pushed out of God's presence. He is fruitless. He's abandoned. He's sent out into the wilderness. Let me ask you, are you thirsty? Are you experiencing the results of separation from God? Are you cast out of God's presence? Are you like a dried up, fruitless tree in the desert, separated from the living God? The Lord Jesus is calling you. God is calling you. God is calling Adam, who has been pushed out of the garden. Anyone who thirsts, Jesus says, come unto me and drink. But secondly, not only is thirst the experience of the results of separation from God, the curse that he puts upon us, but thirst is also a sense of separation from the living and life-giving God himself. Not just the results, but God himself. And this kind of thirst, this sense of being separated from God is like a light of dawn on the horizon before the sun comes up. This thirst announces that the day of grace is on its way. This kind of thirst, a realization that God is not with me and I want him to be, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit's convicting and illuminating work. It is known and felt when a man, a woman, a boy or girl feels the dreadful pain of separation from God himself. Not simply the fruitlessness, not simply the fact that God has cut off all other areas of hope and goodness and gladness in your life, but when you realize, I don't have God. You might even have many other things, but you realize I don't have God. And you feel the pain of that separation. This thirst moans and bewails because of its distance from the God of life. It feels the evil and terrible wickedness of its own idolatry. Jeremiah chapter 2 is part of God's indictment against Israel and he says, let heaven be astonished and horribly afraid. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and they have hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. And a man who has this thirst, this sense of separation from God, he realizes, I've been pursuing other things. I've been finding satisfaction for my thirst in other things. I want God. I'm tired of this idolatry. It cries out with Holy David when he was experiencing what felt to him like exile from the merciful merciful presence of God. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart is desolate. Desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Unfortunately, many who are a thirsty land, who are the heath and the desert, who have been cast out of God's presence, do not feel it. I doubt Nabal, that churlish man, felt his distance from God. He enjoyed his earthly things, but they were all cursed earthly things. But David, who was actually physically suffering more than Nabal, felt separated from God at this point in his life when he writes Psalm 143 and he says, my soul thirsteth after thee, not thy stuff, but thee, as a thirsty land. God created you In his own image. He gave you, he gave Adam and Eve and all of us as well dominion over his entire creation. He supplied us with all kinds of good things in that creation so that our service to him would be sweet and enjoyable as we walk with him. But because of our sin, we have submitted ourselves to God's enemy, Satan, and the curse of God's law rests upon us. We should feel our thirst, our separation from God. We should consider our sin and look around ourselves and consider the reality of God's judgment. War is judgment. Fires are judgment. Car accidents, death, all of these things are part of the sentence that God has put on this world. Not that each of those things is given for a particular sin, but that all of it comes because of sin in general. We are in a cursed world, under the curse every death is personal exile from the mercies of God in this world and for those outside of our Lord Jesus Christ their death is eternal exile from God's presence and there like that rich man they will thirst forever the worm will not die and the flame will not be quenched so Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ stands in that last day, that great day of the feast. He stands in public before the entire crowd and he cries out. He doesn't whisper. He doesn't say it to his 12. He says it to all. If any man thirst, if anyone thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. How does this amazing Jesus satisfy the thirsty soul? If thirst is separation from God, the Lord Jesus deals with that separation and brings the exiled home. This holy mediator, this man on earth and God in heaven in one person brings God and man Together. He is God and He satisfies our created need for God. We were created in the image of God for a relationship with God. We were wired for communion with and fellowship with God. That's why people are always worshiping something, if not the true God. One of our most important appetites is loving God, desiring God, experiencing God, experiencing His power, His mercy, His love, His holiness. And this appetite for God is marred by sin. So people often worship idols or themselves or some other thing, eternal matter or whatever. But this appetite to worship God, this this thirst to know the ultimate reality of the universe, this thirst to know the one who is infinite and glorious above all comprehension is met in us by knowing Jesus Christ because he is God. But Not only is he God, as it says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, but also he is man, and he brings God closer to us in a way that would never have been without such an amazing Savior. Because there in that same John chapter 1, he says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory (coughs) as of the only begotten of the Father. But not only is he God and man, and he brings us together by his nature, but he is a great savior for sinners. And that's why he comes before them and says, come unto me and drink. Because he's a great savior for sinners. And that meets us with just what we need in our thirsty, sinful condition. We've already heard that sin exiles us. Thirst, drought, famine, suffering are the result of sin. And sin has several things that must be dealt with. Sin has to be paid for, and Jesus paid for it. God told Adam, the day you eat, of tr- you eat the tree that's in the midst of the garden, you will die. And therefore, the wages of sin is death, and therefore, the soul that sins must die. Total and universal destruction is what we deserve. All of us should spend our eternity in the bottom of the eternal lake of fire. Well, it's a bottomless pit, so there is no bottom. But in the same book of John, we read John the Baptist's bold declaration. Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. A lamb in the Old Testament was offered as an atoning sacrifice to carry away the sin guilt of the person who offered it. Now those were animals. They couldn't really take away sin. They were symbols of something greater. Jesus is that sin bearer. He's the one who can stand in and take God's wrath in full and carry it away. And John's gospel goes on to record that he did exactly that. Through his sinless life and his sacrificial death, he atoned for the sins of his people. He paid the price. Oh, a thirsty soul will be refreshed by knowing that sin has been atoned for. Paid in full, the debt is paid. So Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me. I'm the sin debt payer. But two, sin has to be cleansed, not only paid for, but we have to be washed and purified. Oh, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. Based on the work of Jesus atoning our sins, our sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Then our hearts are also purged from an evil conscience, and then we're washed and sanctified. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, where he says that we were very filthy sinners, but you're washed. You're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. But not only do we have to be, does our sins have to be paid for and cleansed, we also have to be reconciled to God. A relationship has to be restored. We are reconciled to God by the death of his Son. We therefore receive all the benefits of being on good terms with God. Amazing gifts flow to us from Jesus. That's why he stood up boldly. I can't do that. I can't stand up in front of people and say, come to me, and I'll satisfy your deepest longing. That would be absurd. Everyone would look at me and say, sorry, you went off the deep end, or the the high part, or whatever it is I went off of. But the Lord Jesus can boldly state it because he knows the cross is coming. He knows the grave is coming, and he knows you'll rise again from the dead. Victory over All sin. And he gives us, after he's dealt with all those sins, the Lord Jesus then takes that sinful person and he brings him into union with himself. And he has communion with him, fellowship, intimate love, and kindness. He talks to him, and the sinner talks back to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we come to him. This is not just, we don't just come to a doctrine. Jesus didn't simply say, if you're thirsty, then come and get the good doctrine. Learn the truth. He said, come to me. Because we come into union with Christ, we come into walking with him. Prayer is the breath of the Christian life. We're refreshed as we talk to him and he talks to us through his word. He strengthens us directly by his Holy Spirit. He answers our prayers. We abide in him and he abides in us. We serve him and he directs our lives. We have a living, moving, real relationship with a living, eternal, glorious being called the son of God who became a man and is now seated at the right hand of the father. And therefore he could stand before sinners and say, come to me. So come, come, come. Come to Jesus and drink. The living water that he has to offer is free. If you're a believer in Christ already, come, come some more. Come closer. Come more. Come more often. Come more thoroughly. But how do we come? The method of coming is simply believing. John chapter 7 here and the next verse, um, verse 38, He that believeth on me. As the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What is coming? Believing. The Lord Jesus found a thirsty woman on a well one day in John chapter 4. She was a filthy woman. Not only an abused woman, but an abusing woman. She was worthy of exile from God's presence. If law keeping makes you a blessed woman, she was the opposite. She was a marriage breaker, a destroyer of God's holy institution And she was thirsty. How did she come? She believed. Even that bad, all they have to do is believe. Yes, to come. Now they won't stay that way because they're going to be justified and sanctified and regenerated and all the things that God has for them. They're going to enter into communion with Christ and they're going to fellowship with Him the rest of their days. He won't leave them there. But she believed and she drank and was satisfied. Jesus promised her in John 4, 10 and 14, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me a drink, thou wouldest have asked him and he would have given thee living water. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. A very closely parallel passage to the one we're in. She was so overwhelmed with joy She ran into the city and declared, Come, see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? You know what I think that was an example of? I think that's an example of rivers of living water flowing out of her belly. And that's what the Lord Jesus says will happen to us. Overflow like a fountain. Verse 38. We come to an amazing promise. In God's amazing plan, the once thirsty, exiled sinner now reconciled to God becomes a vessel, a fountain, a channel, a conduit of life-giving and thirst-quenching water to others. The scripture hath said, Jesus says, now if you go look it up in your concordance or on your app on your smartphone or whatever, you will not find a single verse in the Old Testament that says, come to Jesus and drink, and out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. But Jesus tells us that the scripture says it. <clears throat> and we get, when we get down and dig, we can see that the point or message is found in several places of scripture. Notice that whenever God brings people close to him in favor and love, there's water and trees and fruit and plenty. Eden had the water, the trees, the fruit, the plenty. The symbolic place of God's meeting with his people, the tabernacle, was there were pomegranate fruits and palm trees inscribed in gold, and there was uh, there was water, the laver, and all of those things. And as you move through, and the land of Canaan, he said, it's going to be a land where I'm going to bless you. What is it, a land of? Well, flowing with milk and honey, but also a land of brooks of water and of plenty, of all of these blessings. And Notice that whenever they sin and rebel against his goodness and mercy, there's drought and death and fruitlessness and suffering. Garden of Eden, of course, exemplified that. And when we believe in Jesus, he transplants you from the wilderness into Eden, symbolically. I had other examples to go and look at, but you can be glad I took them out because... We are at the end of a day, not the beginning. So we'll jump right to Ezekiel 47. If you go with me to Ezekiel 47, like I said, whenever there's God's blessing, there's these water and trees and fruit. Whenever there's God's curse, there's drought and dead plants and no fruit. But go to Ezekiel 47, we have an amazing picture. We have a picture of a temple in the, in the chapters that come right before it. Ezekiel lived during the Babylonian captivity, which was when God had exiled the people of Judah because of their gross sin against his covenant. And God gave Ezekiel an extraordinary vision of a glorious temple into which God's presence would return. At the beginning of Ezekiel, God's presence leaves. It it goes out by steps. He sees these visions of what people are doing in God's temple, and each time he has one of those visions, God's presence moves further out the, the glorious vision of all those wheels and the cherubim and the, the he says the, the likeness of a man, but he never says he saw a man, but a likeness of a man moves further and further until it goes out of the city, out of Jerusalem. And then when God gives him the vision of the temple, then he comes back. The glory, he says, it was like the vision that I saw by the river Kibar, which was at the beginning of the book. He says the glory of God came back to this new temple. Now, This temple is, and and he ends the book with the simple statement, the Lord is there. The Lord is with his people. He's dwelling with his people. So this, this temple, and I believe that this temple stands for God's presence being with his people in the new covenant. And I know there's different interpretations of that. But either way, what we see here is that when he shows him the vision of the temple, then he also tells him that the land of this new Israel will be restructured and rearranged in which justice and holiness would triumph. And then in chapter 47, he says that from the east side of the temple, a river would gush out. So let's read it here. He says in um, verse four, chapter 47, verse 1, "'Afterward he brought me again unto the door of the house, "'and behold, waters issued out "'from under the threshold of the house eastward.'" For the forefront of the house stood toward the east and the waters came down from under from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. And then he progressively went further and further down the river and as he went down the river it got deeper and deeper very quickly. First it was up to his ankles then it was up to his knees then his all the way up to where he, he says in verse 5 that it was so deep that it was waters to swim in. A river that could not be passed over. And then the water keeps flowing on down the valley. And in verse 7, Now when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Now trees remind us of the Garden of Eden. Then said he unto me, These waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the <coughs> sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And then he goes on to talk about the multitude of fish And how that these, the trees, in verse 12, he talks about how the the fruit of the trees would be for medicine and the fruit would also be for eating. It's the idea of a total reverse of the curse. But where is it coming from? It's coming from the temple of God, the place where God meets with his people. Now, maybe there will be a physical place like this someday in some, somewhere in the world. But I know that it definitely epitomizes the glorious temple that we see in the new Jerusalem in Revelation, chapter, the, the last three chapters of Revelation. And I think that the Lord Jesus is appealing to this right here. Isn't it John who tells us in John chapter 4 where the Lord Jesus tells us tells the woman at the well that we're not going to worship God in Jerusalem anymore or in Mount Gerizim. We're going to worship him in spirit and in truth. And the Lord Jesus in John as well tells us that his body Is the temple because they say what? Because the Lord Jesus told them when he cleaned the temple out that he said, Destroy this temple and I'll build it again in three days. He was talking of the temple of his body. And of course, as we move through the New Testament, we see that God's people are his temple. So if God's people are his temple and Jesus is making a promise about the Holy Spirit, and then he says, Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. I believe he's appealing to pictures like this. There's more, there's Joel. Zechariah as well. We won't go into all of those, but we can be perfectly clear what he means because in verse 39, he tells us. So John 7 and verse 39, he says, This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the Holy Spirit. Are you drinking from Christ If you are, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will thrive, you will bear fruit, and you will be a blessing to the world around you. The New Testament is full of this idea that believers in Christ transform everything around them. They are salt, they impart a flavor to the world. They are light, they shine and reveal. They are fruit bearers, and that fruit that they bear is neighbor transforming. Galatians chapter, end of Galatians, love, joy, peace, self-control, those all affect other people. It's not just internal things that happen inside. When you love, it goes out. When you're joyful, people around you are affected. They're a holy nation, a peculiar people, because they are spiritual people created by God to show forth his praises. So the Lord Jesus stood on that last day of the feast, and he declared, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Are you thirsty? Come to Jesus. Have your sins separated between you and your God? Come to Jesus. Do you long for God's presence? Come to Jesus. Are you drinking from Christ? Come to Jesus more. Drink more. Live more. Is living water flowing from you to others around you? Let it flow more. Commune with Christ more. Believe his promises more. Open the channel. Remove the blockages and let it flow. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord Jesus Christ, we praise and bless your name. Thank you for this word. Speak it to our hearts. Cause us to hear. Oh, Lord The terrible thing about exile from your presence is that we're so sick, our ears are closed. Oh, touch our ears and open them that we might hear. Lord, that every one of us here would love you, trust you, believe in you, and drink deeply, and then be a blessing to those around them. Have mercy on us, I pray. Strengthen us for Christ's sake. Amen. (laughs) Please stand with me. the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.